0: Today I'm going to give you the first catechism lesson for the new topic that, that we have, and that is church history. Um, so we're going to go through different episodes from the history of the church over the past 2,000 years in in the next several weeks. Um, and the first episode is the Edict of Milan of 313. The first time the church was, was given, quote-unquote, religious freedom in the Roman Empire. Um, and I, I think this topic is, is very interesting for two reasons. Um, one, one of the reasons is that the Edict of Milan, or the, the ascent of Constantine and his whole long extended conversion process, um, was, was rather unexpected and you had a period of persecution for the church that stretched over a very long time, 250 years. You can imagine the Christians were wondering if this would ever, ever end. Like, when is the Roman Empire going to stop killing us? If you've been persecuted for for that long and you realize that the persecution is a huge obstacle to converting people to the faith, um, and you're you're wondering what, what is God doing you know, why, why is he allowing this to happen? Um, you're not realizing that that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That this is certain preparation for the the rising up of the church and the triumph of the church in the, the, the centuries of the Middle Ages. You're probably wondering what's what's going on at the time of Constantine. It was about one eighth of the Roman Empire that was Catholic. So. In other words, um, the church had existed for uh, almost three centuries and up to that time had only been able to gain one-eighth of the population to the Catholic faith. And we know the reason why. If someone was saying, I want to preach Jesus Christ to you, I think you should become a Catholic, he is God, he came, he revealed himself, his message is true. And the person would be saying, "Well, aren't you those people who are like being getting eaten by lions in the Colosseum and all and all that? You know, getting beheaded?" And... Yeah, thanks, but, but no, thanks. I, yeah, not not really interested right now. I mean, it's all it's pretty fascinating what you're telling me, but uh, not really interested because persecution is a huge obstacle to conversion. The the, the steeper you make the the price that people have to pay to convert to the faith, the the less people are are going to want to convert. So um, the conversion of Constantine and the turning around the empire from, from their perspective was totally unexpected and was an incredible grace for the Catholic Church and in a since a reward for the fidelity of so many Christians throughout those 250 years and it was a way to set a foundation for Christian civilization that would, that would grow up over the next thousand years. Um, an incredible historical fact that all Catholics should know. It's on the record books. So that's the first fact, that things can turn around quickly. Catholics living in 312 were not expecting the Edict of Milan of 313, where they would be definitively granted freedom to practice the Catholic religion. They weren't expecting it. All of a sudden it turned around and then the rest of the Church's history was very different. So things can turn around quickly. That's the first lesson. The second, the second thing that I that I think is, is interesting um, is the sociological question, and, and this is the question of worldviews and the, the impact that worldviews have on the way laws are framed in society. Um, we're, we're in a very post-Christian age and if, if we ask ourselves questions about where do laws come from? Why are, are societies framed the way that they are? Where do secular democracies, for instance, come from? The secular democracies of, of, of Australia, the United States, Canada, the European nations—these nations, wherein the legislators um, want to to promote abortion um, in, in, the, in the United States, even up some pl- some places, some states, even up to the very moment of birth—they they, want to promote that. Um, they they want to promote endless immigration, uh, no borders. They, they, they want to promote um, rights for people to basically behave however they want. Like There's no limits to the way you want to behave except the, the question of harming someone else. Harm not in the moral sense, because moral harm is no longer recognized, but only in a physical sense. If you, if you harm, you can't Harm someone physically, so we pass laws: you can't harm someone physically, but um, you can do anything else. That the, the laws are trying really hard to to give people as much possibility to do whatever they want, as long as they don't harm someone. Where does this come from? What sort of worldview is behind that? Um, why? In other words, uh, just to take an example. Why would a nation think that abortion is a good thing? Why would they think that this is something that should be, um, would be good for the citizens? That that this is something that that we should really give to our citizens the ability to terminate the life of their child in their womb. And that we should champion this as an expression of human freedom. Where in the world would that come from? From our perspective, hopefully 100 years from now, 200 years from now, people are going to look back and and they're going to see that with horror. Just as we look back to the Roman Empire today, and we see all their practices of infanticide, or their practices of killing um, the the, the girl babies, if if they had a girl, you say, well, you know, we've already got a girl so let's just, let's just kill it." Um, or exposing infants on the rocket. if, if the children were disabled, let's just kill it. Um, why, why did they do that? Because they had no regard for human life. They did not see each human life as being intrinsically valuable. They did not see each human life as being created by God and belonging to God and therefore, something that was sacred and that you didn't touch. That, that your responsibility, from, from our perspective, our responsibility is to receive the life that God gives and to cherish that life as long as, as it's given. And it's not our domain to decide who lives and who dies in the sense of um, simply killing people who are not useful. If someone breaks the laws of God and, and, and um, becomes a threat to society, it is right to terminate their lives for the common good. So the, the question of the death penalty is a question of killing the guilty for the common good. But the question of abortion is killing the innocent because they're not going to be useful. That's the way it was in the Roman Empire. That's the sort of mentality that was necessary to cause infanticide. That was the world view that was necessary to cause infanticide in the Roman Empire. When we come to our current day, why do people believe that abortion is a good? Because they believe in the supremacy of the human will. That whatever you want as an individual human being, you have a right to fulfill. And nothing should stop you from doing what you want And so, if you do not want to carry this child to turn and raise this child, then you have a right to eliminate that child because there is no God. And um, because there's no God, all right, because there's no supreme being above us, then all there is is just human beings, and human beings are supreme. If human beings are supreme, then they have the right to decide to do whatever they want. They are effectively our gods. and So we have to give them the right to do, to choose as many things as possible. Whatever their will decides must be taken as a divine decree, as far as possible. Even if they want to decide to to change their gender, or they, they want to decide to engage in any manner of sexual behavior, or they want to marry whoever they want, or they want to terminate the child in the womb, or they want to smoke marijuana. You know, we're going to legalize absolutely everything um, that that people want to do, as long as it doesn't radically disrupt the the order of society by causing physical violence. That's the sort of worldview that that's behind our modern society. Um, And, what we see with the Edict of Milan, um, believe it or not, this does give back to the Edict of Milan, um, what we see with the Edict of, of Milan is the first time when Christianity has a say about how society should be run and the laws that should be passed in order to lead the citizens to happiness, in order to serve the good of the citizens. Because that's what every legislator pretends to do. They pretend to serve the happiness of society. And the modern legislators, are all going to the the, the the politicians. They're all going to get up and they are going to say, "I know what's going to make you happy. I know what laws I sh- we should pass in order to make you happy." And so, if you vote for me and you put me in the parliament, then I'm going to serve your interests and you can expect laws to come forth that will give you a a very happy life. What we believe as Catholics is that the Catholic Church alone has the proper understanding of what human beings are and therefore alone has the proper understanding of what makes human beings happy and that the laws do not need to be passed according to what people want or the the following of of whatever passion or emotion that may be striking them at the moment. That's not what we need to give to people, but we need to give to them the laws that correspond to their nature as created by God. God has created their nature in a certain way and if they follow the way that God has created their nature, they will be happy. Just like if, if you use anything that's made that's man-made. If you use, if you go to use your car, if you use it according to the manual, things will work well. If you go against the manual, you say, "I've got freedom, so I'm going to use this however I want." I'm, I'm going to use it, to drive it off cliffs and things like that because I just like doing that. Then it's going to break. It's the same with our human nature. If we just take our human nature and we say, "I'm going to use it however I want," I, I'm, I'm going to um, create my own gender. Forget male and female. I'm just going to create another gender, or I'm going to suppress the very life in my womb. Then things break in in a major way. Very many physical diseases come from things like abortion, and also psychological problems because people are tampering with their own human nature. So let's let's just give some examples. You know. Constantine was not a a, um, model Christian. He was was very much a product of of his age. So he was um, very slowly coming to Catholicism. He was a syncretist. What that means is that he kind of believed in both paganism and Catholicism. He believed that... Well, there's certain gods who are over certain nations and and those gods have power. And if you serve those gods and you appease those gods, good things happen to you. So, the way Constantine blended this with Catholicism is is that he somehow thought that our Lord was like the god over the Roman Empire. Um, So Constantine believed that there was a certain, there was a sun god, you know, soul soul is a Latin word for son so he um, thought that, that soul was was somehow the the God that had the power um, and that if he served soul then good things would happen for his empire then he had that vision I think the vision that, that we are all familiar with where um, he is is fighting Maxentius um, is, is this is this other, Roman Caesar, right, because the empire was split into an East and a West, and, and you had um, an Augustus and a Caesar for the for the West, and an Augustus and a Caesar for, for the East. So the Augustus was, was the top dog, and the Caesar was like his subordinate, his, his number one subordinate to be running the, running the, the, the empire. Um, so it was just down to Maxentius and Constantine, I believe in the West, um, and when Constantine was wondering what he should do, he had this vision where he saw the chi ro. The chi Kai chi, chi and ro are two Greek letters, and they're the first letters of Christus um, in Greek, which means the anointed, which is Christ. All right. So, so we've, we've all seen this symbol. Um, I don't think it's on our altar anywhere, but you see it everywhere. Um, in, in Christian symbolism where you've got the X and then you've got like a P above it. Um, so he saw that and, it, and he saw, saw that, it, he heard the voice saying in this sign you will conquer. So he had that put on the Roman insignia when they would go out to, to battle the Cairo. He took that out the battle, he won and he believed that well, you know, Jesus Christ who is like soul Um, has gained me this great victory and if I serve him then in fact I will have great success in my running of the empire. So he tried to um, gain a a certain um, middle ground, to achieve a certain middle ground between paganism and Catholicism. The Edict of, of Milan, the famous Edict of Milan of 313 is not something that made Christianity, the state religion. That's something we have to understand clearly. It did not make Christianity the state religion. That didn't happen until 395. What it did was it gave Catholics freedom of worship so, so they could were, were not to be persecuted for being Catholic. They were not to be put to death for the fact that they were practicing this religion. In the past, they, this religion was seen as being against Rome because the Christians refuse to sacrifice to the gods. And if you think that sacrificing to the gods is what counts for the success of the empire, and someone refuses to sacrifice to the gods, then they're going to be against the empire. So that's that's why the Romans saw, saw the Christians as a threat. These are people who will not sacrifice to the gods. But we've got to sacrifice to the gods in order to have success in our empire. So these citizens are against our empire and we have to eliminate them so they will, they will kill them. Um, by the fact that, that it just took really eighty years, eighty years after 313, Theodosius, Emperor Theodosius, a Christian Emperor, made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. That shows you how if Christianity is allowed freedom, then it is able to gain much more success than if it's persecuting. Yeah, 250 years of persecution, Christianity is not getting much of anywhere, it's just one eighth of the people were converted. But then, 80 years after the Edict of the Milan, it's already the religion of the empire. So, um, Constantine started to build churches for Catholicism, he, he started to donate lands to Catholicism, um, he built the churches himself. The church didn't have churches. They didn't, they didn't know how to build churches. So it's like Constantine was the first architect for, for the Catholic Church. So he built these basilicas. He modeled them after the palaces of of, of the Roman empires. So he Constantine designed St. John Lateran. To this day, you can go to St. John Lateran in, in Rome. He de, he designed it, um, and that was the first type of church that that Catholics had: the basilica it's like a royal house. It was only later on the church developed her own architecture like the Romanesque or the Gothic architecture where you have built churches in the form of a cross. Um, so then he um, s- some other things that, that um, Constantine did, and, and as I say this is interesting because it's the beginning of Christianity permeating into society, he started to give privileges to the clergy. He exempted them from military service and from civil prosecution. He started to transfer some of the uh, civil cases with clerics over to the ecclesiastical courts. This is the beginning of ecclesiastical courts where the church would try her own subjects. She would try her own clergy. You know, and you wouldn't have a situation like with, with Cardinal Pell, for instance, where the, the, the church would first try him, and, and then only if he was found guilty, hand him over to the civil arm. The, the, you started to see this relaxation of laws with regards to slaves. Um, that Constantine passed laws wherein slaves could be freed by their owners in the church. They could come to the church And the priest could enact the freeing of the slave. He would have the legal authority to free the slave. So this shows at the very beginning that the church was not an advocate of slavery. It was a strictly civil ceremony. And the priests themselves, if they had slaves, they didn't even need any legal formality. They could just say, you're free, and just let them go. Um, In 333, the Ecclesiastical Tribunal is is placed on the same level as the civil court. Um, The testimony of the bishop was was given an incredible weight, almost to the level of proof. If the bishop said it was true, then it was was taken to be true. Um, They could transfer any case to the Ecclesiastical Court, and the decision of the bishop could not be appealed. Even more interesting in my mind are the laws that relate to morality. If we think today that, that we have a more enlightened civilization, that that's the impression that people have. Um, yes. Well, it's wrong because we're going back, we're actually going back to the pagan times. The legislation that's passed today is going back to the pagan times. I just mention some of these laws that are being passed right after Christianity is starting to have an influence. 319, their prohibition of torture or the murder of a slave. You could murder your slave beforehand without receiving any punishment from the state. You just kill your slaves. 320, um, the abrogation of laws against celibacy. So celibacy was forbidden. Also, Sunday was made an obligatory holiday in 320. Um, 325, the children of slaves cannot be sold, and sold separated from their families. Or if the if, if slaves had children, they could, they could just be taken away from their families. 326, severe penalties for rape. Whereas before, you could get off very easily for that crime. Fornication prohibited by the state in 326, severe penalties for cohabitation, even if you cohabitated with someone. You have severe penalties if you're caught cohabiting. No more prostitution ends; those were abolished. 329, adultery, forbidden by the state, punishments for adultery. So these things are sort of unthinkable today. I mean, the fact that we have a law against adultery or even a law against cohabitation is absolutely, and utterly unthinkable today, because in the name of of human freedom. So. Um, but but we, we have the data. Um, w- one thing that, that we have as uh, an advantage as, as capitalists is, is we actually have written on the historical books what's, what happened and what went down and what, what effects it had on society. So we don't, we don't have to sort of appeal to some ideal situation that has never happened. We can say, well, look, our spirit, our worldview has been incarnated into society and these are the, are the good effects that it had on people. And all you have to do in order to bring those good effects to the current day is just do the same thing. You know, have that same worldview, pass those same laws, and you will get the same effects. Um, whereas if you continue with the laws that, as they're going with this, this rampant immorality, then what happened in the Roman Empire will happen today. So this should be um, something that, that we should know and use in in order to have the conviction that, that the Catholic worldview does bring good effects for society.